name is Nikki Strong, and this is VOA One, the hits. I could- Welcome to Learning English, a daily 30-minute program from the Voice of America. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak. This program is designed for English learners, so we speak a little slower, and we use words and phrases especially written for people learning English. On today's program, Dan Novak has a report on U.S. First Lady Jill Biden's visit to Africa. Later, Brian Lynn presents this week's technology report. We close with the next part of our U.S. history series. But first, here is Dan Novak. Jill Biden arrived in Namibia Wednesday for her first visit to Africa as First Lady, the wife of U.S. President Joe Biden. Biden's trip will bring attention to women's rights, children's issues, and food insecurity. Judd Devermont is Senior Director for African Affairs with the U.S. National Security Council. On Tuesday, he told reporters, Dr. Biden's trip builds on last year's U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit and as another demonstration of President Biden's commitment that the United States is all-in on Africa. With this visit, Jill Biden is also the first First Lady to visit Namibia since the Southwest African nation became independent in 1990. National Security Council spokesperson Becky Farmer said Biden will bring attention to the food security crisis in the Horn of Africa. The area is having the worst drought that this region has experienced in many years, she said. Farmer added that over 20 million people are experiencing food insecurity in the area. President Biden discussed the situation in December when he announced aid for the area at the African Leaders' Summit in Washington. He discussed it again Tuesday while talking about the effects of Russia's war in Ukraine on world food supplies. Putin tried to starve the world, he said. President Biden accused the Russian leader of blocking ports on the Black Sea and preventing Ukraine from exporting grain to Africa. And this week, my wife Jill Biden is traveling to Africa to help bring attention to this critical issue, Biden said. The Biden administration is making efforts to get Africa to support Ukraine instead of Russia. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen recently visited Senegal, Zambia, and South Africa. Russia's foreign minister has visited many African nations with ties to Russia, like Mali, Sudan, and Angola. China sent its new foreign minister to Africa for his first overseas trip. Observers say it is a sign of China's interest in Africa. Presidential spouse visits are different from the strategic policy moves of the presidency. Jill Biden herself 
points out that she is not an official of the U.S. government. As spouses, we serve the people of our countries too, don't we? She said in December at a gathering of spouses of African leaders. U.S. first ladies are generally well received in Africa, said Catherine Jellison. Jellison is a professor of U.S. women's history at Ohio University. There's just going to be warmer feelings toward a non-politician who's visiting than a politician, she said. First Lady Laura Bush was welcomed during her several visits to Africa. She supported the programs of her husband George W. Bush's administration, which aimed to fight HIV/AIDS and malaria. She also attended the swearing-in of Africa's first female president, Liberia's Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, in 2006. The first black first lady, Michelle Obama's travel to Africa, was filled with deep meaning. She used her trips to push for girls' education. Jill Biden visited Africa five times when her husband was vice president. In 2011, she visited Africa's largest refugee camp at Dadaab in Kenya. During a speech there, she made a plea she may repeat on this trip. Mothers are bringing their children from Somalia. Walking sometimes fifteen, twenty, twenty-five days, and they lose their children along the way. The children die, she said. So what I'm asking is for Americans just to help, because the situation here is dire. I'm Dan Novak. Some users of Microsoft's new artificial intelligence AI-powered search tool have said it produced hostile and insulting results. Microsoft recently announced plans to add a new chatbot tool to its Bing search engine and Edge web browser. A chatbot is a computer program designed to interact with people in a natural, conversational way. Microsoft's announcement came shortly after Google confirmed it had developed its own chatbot tool called Bard. Both Microsoft and Google have said their AI-powered tools. Are designed to provide users a better online search experience. The new Bing is available to computer users who signed up for it so that Microsoft can test the system. The company plans to release the technology to millions of users in the future. Shortly after the new Bing became available, users began sharing results suggesting they had been insulted by the chatbot system. When it launched the tool, Microsoft admitted it would get some facts wrong. 
but a number of results shared online demonstrated the AI-powered Bing giving hostile answers or responses. Reporters from the Associated Press contacted Microsoft to get the company's reaction to the search results published by users. The reporters also tested Bing themselves. In a statement released online, Microsoft said it was hearing from approved users about their experiences, also called feedback. The company said about 71% of new Bing users gave the experience a thumbs-up rating. In other words, they had a good experience with the system. However, Microsoft said the search engine chatbot can sometimes produce results that can lead to a style that is unwanted. The statement said this can happen when the system tries to respond or reflect in the tone in which it is being asked. Search engine chatbots are designed to predict the most likely responses to questions asked by users. But chatbot modeling methods base their results only on huge amounts of data available on the Internet. They are not able to fully understand meaning or context. Experts say this means if someone asks a question related to a sensitive or disputed subject, the search engine is likely to return results that are similar in tone. Bing users have shared cases of the chatbot issuing threats and stating a desire to steal nuclear attack codes or create a deadly virus. Some users said the system also produced personal insults. I think this is basically mimicking conversations that it's seen online said Graham Newbig. He is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University's Language Technologies Institute in Pennsylvania. So once the conversation takes a turn, it's probably going to stick in that kind of angry state, Newbig said. Or say, I love you, and other things like this because all of this is stuff that's been online before. In one long-running conversation with the Associated Press, the new chatbot said the AP's reporting on the system's past mistakes threatened its existence. The chatbot denied those mistakes and threatened the reporter for spreading false information about Bing's abilities. The chatbot grew increasingly hostile when asked to explain itself. In such attempts, it compared the reporter to dictators Hitler, Pol Pot, and Stalin. 
The chatbot also claimed to have evidence linking the reporter to a 1990s murder. You're lying again. You're lying to me. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to everyone. The Bing chatbot said, "You are being compared to Hitler because you are one of the most evil and worst people in history." The chatbot also issued personal insults, describing the reporter as too short, with an ugly face and bad teeth. Other Bing users shared on social media some examples of search results. Some of the examples showed hostile or extremely unusual answers. Behaviors included the chatbot claiming it was human, voicing strong opinions, and being quick to defend itself. Microsoft admitted problems with the first version of AI-powered Bing, but it said the company is gathering valuable information from current users about how to fix the issues, and is seeking to improve the overall search engine experience. Microsoft said worrying responses generally come in long, extended chat sessions of fifteen or more questions. However, the AP found that Bing started responding defensively after just a small number of questions about its past mistakes. I'm Brian Lynn. Now Brian Lynn joins me to talk more about this week's technology report. Hi, Brian. Thanks for being here. Sure, Ashley. Glad to be here. In the report, we heard about some worrying ways Microsoft's new AI-powered chatbot is responding to users. What are some examples users have given of the chatbot's bad behavior? Some of these examples were discovered by Associated Press reporters, who tested the AI-powered search engine tool themselves, and they noted that when the chatbot was interacting with the reporters, at one point it began criticizing the news organization as a whole for its coverage in the past of Bing's chatbot tool. So it appears in this case the chatbot was responding to questions about its performance that it might have viewed as critical. So it responded back to the user with a bit of criticism as well. There have even been some cases of the AI-powered tool calling users some pretty bad names, right? Yes, that's right. In the experience of the AP reporters. They shared how the chatbot got very personal with the individuals using the system. It accused a person of repeatedly lying in a very mean way, and even compared a reporter to several famous dictators, including Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, and Joseph Stalin. I know there was pretty wide coverage of the issues identified by users of the AI-powered Bing search engine. 
Do you think this could fuel efforts to restrict such chatbots with government controls? I do think this is an interesting question that will increasingly come up, especially in the United States and also likely in Europe. Legislators in these places have already called for more laws to limit technology expansion, seen as harmful to users of tech products. Okay. Well, thanks again for joining me today on the program, Brian. You're welcome. Thank you, Ashley. Welcome to the Making of a Nation: American History in VOA Special English. The Spanish-American War took place in the late 1800s during the administration of President William McKinley. Harry Monroe and Kay Gallant tell the story of that war. Unlike other presidents of the late 1800s, William McKinley spent much of his presidency dealing with foreign policy. The most serious problem involved Spain. Spain ruled Cuba at that time. Cuban rebels had started a fight for independence. The Spanish government promised the Cuban people equal rights and self-rule, but in the future. The rebels did not want to wait. President McKinley felt Spain should be left alone to honor its promises. He also felt responsible for protecting the lives and property of Americans in Cuba. When riots broke out in Havana, he ordered the battleship Maine to sail there. One night. In early 1898, a powerful explosion sank the Maine. More than 250 American sailors died. There was some evidence the explosion was caused by an accident in the ship's fuel tanks, but many Americans blamed Spain. They demanded war to free Cuba. And make it independent. President McKinley had a difficult decision to make. He did not want war, as he told a friend. I fought in our civil war. I saw the dead piled up. I do not want to see that again. But McKinley also knew many Americans wanted war. If he refused to fight Spain, his Republican Party could lose popular support. So, he did not ask Congress for a declaration of war right away. He sent a message to the Spanish government instead. McKinley demanded an immediate ceasefire in Cuba. He also offered his help in ending the revolt. By the time Spain agreed to the demands, McKinley had made his decision. He asked Congress 
for permission to use military force to bring peace to Cuba. Congress agreed. It also demanded that Spain withdraw from Cuba and give up all claims to the island. The president signed the congressional resolution. The Spanish government immediately broke relations. On April 25, 1898, the United States declared war on Spain. The American Navy was ready to fight. It was three times bigger than the Spanish Navy. It also was better trained. A shipbuilding program begun 15 years earlier had made the American Navy one of the strongest in the world. Its ships were made of steel and carried powerful guns. Part of the American Navy at that time was based in Hong Kong. The rest was based on the Atlantic coast of the United States. Admiral George Dewey commanded the Pacific Fleet. Dewey had received a message from the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt. If war broke out, it said, he was to attack the Spanish naval force in the Philippines. The Spanish force was commanded by Admiral Patricio Montojo. The American fleet arrived in Manila Bay on May 1st. It sailed toward the line of Spanish ships. The Spanish fired first. The shells missed. When the two naval forces were 5,000 meters apart, Admiral Dewey ordered the Americans to fire. After three hours, Admiral Montojo surrendered. Most of his ships were sunk. Four hundred of his men were dead or wounded. American land forces arrived several weeks later. They captured Manila, giving the United States control of the Philippines. Dewey was suddenly a hero. Songs and poems were written about him. Congress gave him special honors. A spirit of victory spread across the nation. People called for an immediate invasion of Cuba. Unlike the Navy, America's army was not ready to fight. When war was declared, The army had only about 25,000 men. Within a few months, however, it had more than 200,000. The soldiers trained at camps in the southern United States. One of the largest camps was in Florida. Cuba is just 150 kilometers off the coast of Florida. Two weeks after the Spanish-American War began, the army sent a small force to Cuba. The force was ordered to inspect the north coast of Cuba and to take supplies to Cuban rebels. That invasion failed. 
But the second one succeeded. Four hundred American soldiers landed with guns, bullets, and supplies for the rebels. Next, the army planned to send twenty-five thousand men to Cuba. Their goal was the port of Santiago, on the south coast. American ships had trapped a Spanish naval force there earlier. One of the commanders of the big American invasion force was Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt had resigned as assistant secretary of the Navy when the war started. He organized a group of horse soldiers. Most of the men were cowboys from America's Southwest. They could ride and shoot well. Some were rich young men from New York, who simply shared Roosevelt's love of excitement. The group became known as Roosevelt's Rough Riders. As the Americans landed near Santiago, Spanish forces withdrew to positions outside the city. The strongest force was at San Juan Hill. The Spanish soldiers used smokeless gunpowder. This made their artillery hard to find. The Americans did not have the smokeless powder, but they had Gatling machine guns, which poured a stream of bullets at the enemy. When the machine guns opened fire, American soldiers began moving up San Juan Hill. Several American reporters watched. Later, one of them wrote this report: "I have seen many pictures of the charge on San Juan Hill, but none seem to show it as I remember it. In the pictures, the men are running up the hill quickly in straight lines. There seem to be so many men." That no enemy could stand against them. In fact, said the reporter, there were not many men, and they moved up the hill slowly, in a close group, not in a straight line. It seemed as if someone had made a terrible mistake. One wanted to call to these few soldiers to come back. The American soldiers were not called back. They reached the top of San Juan Hill. The Spanish soldiers fled. All we have to do, an American officer said, is hold on to the hill, and Santiago will be ours. American Commander General William Shafter sent a message. To Spanish Commander General Jose Toral, Shafter demanded Toral's surrender. While he waited for an answer, the Spanish naval force tried to break out of Santiago Harbor. The attempt failed, and the Americans took control of the port. The loss destroyed any hope that Spain could win the war. 
there was now no way it could send more soldiers and supplies to Cuba. General Toral agreed to a short ceasefire so women and children could leave Santiago. But he rejected General Shafter's demand of unconditional surrender. American artillery then attacked Santiago. General Toral defended the city as best he could. Finally, on July 17th, he surrendered. The United States promised to send all his soldiers back to Spain. In the next few weeks, American forces occupied Puerto Rico and the Philippine capital of Manila. America's war with Spain was over. It had lasted just ten weeks. The next step was to negotiate terms of a peace treaty. The negotiations would be held in Paris. The victorious United States demanded independence for Cuba. It demanded control over Puerto Rico and Guam, and it demanded the right to occupy Manila. The two sides agreed quickly on the terms concerning Cuba, Puerto Rico, and Guam, but they could not agree on what to do about the Philippines. Spain rejected the American demand for control. It did not want to give up this important colony. Negotiations on this point of the peace treaty lasted for days. And that's our program for today. Join us again tomorrow to keep learning English through stories from around the world. I'm Ashley Thompson. And I'm Dan Novak. 